Isaiah 50, verse 5, says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And Father, we humbly ask as we open the word of God now as an act of worship that you'd prepare us. Lord, as always, we're asking, do whatever it takes within each one of us, Lord, that we might truly have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular portion of the word of God this morning. And particularly, Lord, as we study it, contemplating, preparing ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, you said, Jesus, to do it in remembrance of you. So we want to put our minds upon you and truly remember you this morning, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to partake of the elements and to celebrate what you've asked us to as your sons and daughters. So speak, Lord, by your spirit through what you've spoken here in your word this day to us personally. And we ask together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I have to say one of my biggest concerns with, I feel, upcoming generations, and please don't take any offense to what I'm saying at this, and I'm not going to quantify age groups, is I feel like that in our upcoming generations, there is a real diminishing of resolve, determination, people being willing to be dedicated to something, to stay on task, to exercise resolve, to demonstrate a little bit of grit, and to press forward in the midst of adversity and challenges and not so easily turn away or give up or, in a sense, turn off course just because it gets a little bit challenging. You know, the word determination is defined as firmness in one's purpose and unwavering dedication to accomplish a task. That is, when a task is in front of you, a goal is ahead of you, an assignment is given to you, the Bible here displays, I think, one of the most beautiful pictures of determination in relation to pointing us to the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these verses here, I think we get a great display of determination in a person, and the person being described is the human life, Jesus, when he lived in his humanity among us, and displaying his determination to fulfill the calling of God and the purpose of God and his unwavering dedication and determination to accomplish the task that was set in front of him, the thing that he knew that he was born to accomplish. This prophecy here that we're looking at regarding the earthly life of Jesus and his suffering predicts how Jesus displayed, if nothing else in these verses, tremendous determination. The resolve of Jesus in his humanity to press forward, to persevere, to be faithful until the end in his eternal mission to provide salvation for our sin. And aren't you glad that Jesus was determined? Aren't you glad that Jesus in his humanity exercised tremendous resolve through the process, listen, of obedient suffering, obedient suffering, finishing the task, 
completing what was necessary and staying on course. Philippians 2 describes some of what Jesus did this way, having come from heaven, the eternal Son of God, being forever existent there before coming as a man. Philippians 2 says of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then listen to what he says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. So notice, as the Bible describes Jesus, if you would, condescending, coming as a man, living as a humble servant, not seeking to be served, but to serve, and then ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many, the Bible describes that Jesus' devotion, Jesus' determination to obedience was so strong that it literally says, the Spirit of God says, he became obedient to the point of death. And then he adds, even the death of the cross, which is the most excruciating, probably in human history, form of capital punishment to some degree, probably, that has ever been carried out among humanity. And that Jesus was so committed to be obedient, he had such resolve about doing what was right and not wavering from that, that it says he was willing to be obedient even to the point of death. In other words, he was willing to be obedient even if it killed him willing to be obedient even if it not only killed him, but if it was torturous and hard and brutal to persevere through all the pain and discomfort and difficulty, even to carry out and execute the thing that he was asked to do. And look, Jesus' determination in his earthly life and ministry was to help, deliver, and serve us. And I think that determination particularly, two things I want to draw your attention to in our text this morning was first of all to assure us of his love for us. By what he experienced, the gravity of the suffering, it was to assure us that we should never question his love, that he would be willing to endure such. And secondly, I think it was to assure us of his forgiveness, that by what he did, forgiveness has been fully accomplished, provided, and there is no concern that any sin you or I have committed somehow has not been pardoned, atoned for, and that we cannot be forgiven of by pleading the blood of Jesus Christ because of the efficacy of the finished work of Jesus in his suffering and death on our behalf. Now, throughout Isaiah's prophecy, he at times speaks of things both present as well as further out. We've talked a lot on Wednesday night as we've been going through it so far about how sometimes the Holy Spirit's directing Isaiah to speak about things in the present tense almost like he's having the microscopic view. He's looking very close up. And then at times, in a matter of a few phrases, it's like he goes from a microscope to a telescope and he looks way far out in the telescopic view of things way further down in history regarding the, the coming of Christ and his first coming as well as his second coming. And we talked about how God dwells outside of eternity. He dwells out, excuse me, outside of the time realm, I should say, in eternity. But that means for God, everything is present. That's why he calls himself the I am. I am right now. He's the God who was, who is, and who is to come. He dwells outside of time. So therefore, by the Spirit of God, he could direct the prophet Isaiah at times to say things in the present moment of things that were not going to come past 
for hundreds of years, and even he speaks of things all the way down to the kingdom age, because to God, it's already present tense for him. So it's no problem for him to be able to do that. That's what makes him unique, and it's why the prophet speaks in this way from time to time. And one of the things Isaiah would periodically describe in his prophecies, we've been seeing already, we see it in our text this morning, is he would speak about the life of the Messiah, the Savior whom God was predicting and promising that he was going to send, and often he's referred to as my servant. We see that in Isaiah a lot. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who would come and serve the eternal purposes of God to provide forgiveness of sins for all of humanity, both in his first coming, as he would come as a humble servant suffering for the sin of the world, and then ultimately, as we understand very clearly now on the other side of the cross and resurrection and ascension of Christ through Scripture, that he also would return in a second coming, and then he would come back as a glorified king, as a conquering king to set up his throne and to reign forever. This is where at times in that day when Jesus first came, many of the Jews were struggling to marry these two ideas together from the prophets. This idea that the same person could be both a humble, suffering servant and also a powerful, glorified ruler king who would conquer and set up a throne and rule and reign. We understand that very clearly because we realize Jesus would come in two comings, his first time as a humble servant, the second time as a glorified reigning king. Peter talks about in his prophecy, 1 Peter chapter 1, about this struggle. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing to when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. You amazing that reality that you and I are privileged to understand something that even Isaiah and the other prophets were not fully grasping. God was using them as a vessel to say things by the Spirit of God, and they were scratching their heads saying, I have no idea what that meant, but I know God told me to say that. <laughs> I, see, I don't understand, but we have the privilege to understand this. They were searching intently to try and understand and marry these ideas of the two comings of Jesus together of both his sufferings and the glories to follow. Well, it's very evident, I think, by the reading here in verses 5 and 6 in our text, that here Isaiah is being directed to talk about the first coming of Jesus. When our Lord Jesus came, took a body of flesh, added a human nature to his deity, to his divine nature, was born of a virgin, lived as a man among us, in order to be that humble, obedient servant who would fulfill the righteous requirements of the holy law of God, and then in our place would make atonement for the sin of the world as he died sacrificially as the ultimate Passover lamb, as the wrath of God came upon him as the ultimate Passover lamb so that God could pass over us in judgment and Jesus could remove the sin of the world by dying on the cross for our sins and then raising victoriously, defeating the power of sin, Satan, and death. Now remember, Isaiah speaking these things of the first coming of Christ in verses 5 and 6 here, over 700 years before Jesus ever entered into this physical world and lived as a man, predicting with explicit details things about the Messiah and about the Savior. Why? 
so that God, who's outside of time saying these things seven centuries before they ever came to pass, was giving as much credible evidence as possible so that when Jesus showed up on the scene, people could see Jesus living and fulfilling these things and say, that's got to be the Messiah. That's got to be the Savior. Because those things described in the prophets describe specifically what Jesus was doing. Now, if you'll notice with me in verse 5 here, our first thing we see regarding the wonderful determination of our Lord Jesus Christ and his humanity when he came, verse 5 says of Jesus, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Now notice, do you hear what's going on there in verse 5? You hear the voice of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who's been eternally existent with the Father, with the Holy Spirit for all of eternity, you hear him through the prophet there, the voice of Jesus, making these statements as an assessment of his own earthly life that would come to pass 700 years later. Look what he says. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. That's the voice of Jesus saying that, speaking from eternity. And as he says there, Jehovah God, that is the heavenly father, has opened my ear. It's speaking not necessarily of having an open ear in order to hear instruction or follow a command. That's certainly a part of the overall idea, and we'll talk about that. But certainly Jesus had an open ear to hear what the Father said, to follow what the Father wanted. Remember, Jesus would say in the Gospels, I don't do anything unless the Father does it. I don't say anything unless the Father says it and tells me to then say that is his extension here on earth. But the picture here that Isaiah is describing, Jesus is referencing as he speaks in his voice here, of the Lord God, Jehovah God, opening his ear is a reference to a custom in that day where a servant who had the right to be freed and to go live however they wanted according to their own free will as they chose would instead at times decide to willingly submit themselves to a lifetime of servitude to their master and complete allegiance for the rest of their life to that master as a willing choice because they loved their master and they saw their master's ideas and their master's purposes and plans as something worthy of serving so they would forsake their freedom and obediently dedicate their life to fully serving their master through this process of what the Bible alludes to here as the opening of the ear, that the servant's ear would be opened. The custom is described in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21. Let me read it to you. It says, but if a servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. I bet you that was real hygienic. Pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So this was a known custom in that day, that if the servant was able to go free, sometimes the servant would say, I don't want my freedom. I want to serve my master. I want to fulfill his purposes. And the way that that was indicated culturally was the servant's ear would be opened by the master's dictation that this is what the servant wants, 
They would bring him to the doorpost or a door. They'd put the awl through the ear. The servant ear would be opened at the master's confirmation of such. Typically, they'd put a little gold loop or something of that nature in there to indicate that this was a willing bondservant and that they desired to obey their master in all things, not because they had to, but because they submitted to a life of total allegiance to live for their master's will and purposes forever. In Psalm chapter 40, it speaks of this as sort of the total submission of the Messiah to live obediently to God the Father over his life. Psalm 40 depicts the imagery there of the obedient servant in the same way. It says this, again, this is the voice of Jesus saying, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. Notice Jesus speaking of the word of God says in the scroll of the book, it's written of me. Jesus clearly indicating that why should we not just study the New Testament, but just as much the Old Testament? Because Jesus said, and keep in mind, when that was being recorded, there was no New Testament. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. That is, the, the scriptures are about the Son of God. It's about a person behind the pages. That's what we should be looking for when we study the scriptures. When Jesus was speaking to the disciples and those on the Emmaus Road, it says he expounded in the scriptures all things concerning himself. And so Jesus said in the, the, the summation of the word of God, it is written of me, it's all to point to me. And then it says of Jesus in Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law was within my heart. So Jesus talks about how his life was obediently like this bondservant submitted to the Father, that his ear was open, and that Jesus found great pleasure in fulfillment of doing the Father's will. He says, your law is not just in my head, he says, it's in my heart. I desire to do your will. In other words, it, it pleased Jesus, it was a satisfaction to him to be able to follow the Father's will to obediently live out what the word of God said of his life and what the word of God described. Understand, Jesus' life really was a holy, righteous life that was fulfilling perfectly all the righteous requirements of the law of God. As the sinless son of God, as the perfect man, Jesus was fulfilling the law of God. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And why did he fulfill them? Because I can't. And you cannot. It, look, Jesus said, I'm not setting aside the Old Testament law. What I'm doing, because trust me, you need me to do this. I'm fulfilling it all for you because you'll never do it perfectly. You will always fail. You'll always fall short by the knowledge of the law of God is the indication that we're sinners. The law just shows us that we're lawbreakers and that we need a savior. And Jesus said, listen, you don't have to live under the law. Stop living under the law. I fulfilled the law because you'll never be able to fulfill it perfectly. doesn't mean we set aside the law of God as if it's not important. We just realize I can't live like that. I'll always fall short. I'll always come up short and be a sinner before God. But Jesus says, I perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, and that's good on our behalf, lest we be required to do such. And Jesus lived a life of total obedience to the Father's will like a loyal servant. John 6, 38, Jesus declared, I come down from heaven not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. So this is what Jesus wants us to recognize of his life, that his ear was open as a man. He lived in total pleasure of the Father in heaven, doing the Father's will, submitting himself to the Father as ruler over his life to fulfill the righteous requirements of the heavenly Father. But look, as a man, understand, Jesus still faced temptation and pressure to sin. In his humanity, he still endured temptation to disobey and to rebel. He faced that, but look what the Bible tells us of Jesus' determination to obey. Look at verse 5 again. He says, but I was not rebellious. Did he face temptation to sin and to rebel against the will of God? Did he face temptation to sin and to rebel against the word of God? Or, or Because there were temptations to selfishly satisfy himself or Satan was tempting him? Yes. But Jesus said, but I was not rebellious. He never rebelled one time. He remained dedicated and fully obedient on our behalf, never rebelling against the Father's desires, never rebelling against the truth of the Word of God, never rebelling by satisfying himself selfishly in a wrong way. This was necessary because of the sinless life of Jesus that was required to make him the perfect sacrifice for sins. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Peter says in his writing, 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in, in return. What incredible determination in Jesus to the obedience of the will of God in holy, righteous living. And folks, why is that so important? Because that's critical for our salvation. The doctrine of the sinless life of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential so that he might offer unto a holy, righteous God of the judge of all humanity a life that was fully acceptable, that it satisfied the righteous requirements of the Heavenly Father and perfect compliance with the law of God in order to satisfy the Father in heaven. And so Jesus living in that manner, completing the satisfactory desire of the Father, was therefore then able to make perfect payment on our behalf as he then offered his life as the sinless substitute, as the perfect man to gratify and satisfy all the demands of holy, righteous Father in heaven as the judge of all the universe so that he satisfied. And then if that were not enough, he then allowed himself in our place to be punished for our guilt as the lawbreakers for all the crimes that we've committed morally and spiritually and mentally and in the ways that we behave so that we can know our sin is fully covered and paid for. Amazing to think that Jesus could say, I was not rebellious, that is, ever. And to me, that, that really startles me because think how many times we've been rebellious. Think how many times you've been rebellious to the word of God. You know what the Word of God says. I know what the Scripture says. Think how many times you have rebelled against what God's Word says. Think how many times in our lives we have been guilty of, re of rebelling against what the voice of the Spirit was clearly saying to us, and because in our moment of selfishness or anger or impatience or frustration or whatever it may have been, that we rebelled against the voice of the Spirit of God and we were rebellious. 
Thank goodness that Jesus never rebelled, that he satisfied what was necessary so that we can trust in his perfect work and not our performance because often we rebel. Romans chapter 5 assures us this way, saying, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I mean, those few verses there from Romans 5 are, are pregnant with spiritual meaning, what's being conveyed there. But to think about what the Bible's saying, though how we may view ourselves that we were enemies. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I wasn't really, I mean, I wasn't really interested in living for God at one point in my life. I mean, yeah, I was kind of doing some dumb stuff. No, God says you were an enemy. An enemy, that's a strong term. An enemy. And when we were enemies in that condition, God lovingly sought to reconcile us by punishing his own son who was completely innocent, who had never done anything wrong. He lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life, and God allowed his son to be punished to make the peace treaty for the terms, and the terms were the blood of Christ, the Bible says. We've been justified by his blood that was shed in his death on our behalf. And again, that word justified is a New Testament doctrine that means to declare a guilty person righteous. You have to understand, the Bible doesn't just teach that our sins are removed and our sins are pardoned and forgiven. The Bible teaches, yes, that's one part of it. Your sins are removed, your sins are pardoned, you're cleansed of all your sins and guilt. But the Bible teaches justification by faith, which means that then God deposits into your spiritual account all the righteousness of Jesus. So he takes away all your sin and guilt, and he gives to you all the righteous standing of Jesus, justified. He declares you a righteous, innocent person so that you, when you trust in Christ, and I, when I, my faith is in Christ, can come to God, and I'm seen in his Son. And he relates to me and relates to you, not according to all of our past failures and grievous mistakes, or even our present struggles and the selfish things we've done that's, in a sense, made us guilty before God recently, but he looks upon you in a spiritual position as if you're righteous, the righteousness of Jesus. And he relates to you and I that way. How wonderful that by faith, God's given to us that wonderful position because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We next read in the end of verse 5 there of Jesus as well. Jesus says that, nor did I turn away. That is, again, he never turned away in obedience or in disobedience. He never turned away to pursue some wrong path or go down some wrong course. Thank goodness, because again, can I just say, none of us can ever make that claim. Which one of us could say, I've never turned away. I never turned away. Right? A few chapters from here, Isaiah 53, the Bible says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We turned away desperately and horribly when we weren't living for Christ before we knew him. And truth of the matter is, even after we become Christians, there have been times when we all have turned away. There have been times when some of us has, have turned away for a whole season from the Lord and backslid 
and turned our own way and were selfishly living in rebellion. Thank goodness Jesus remained faithful to finish and he never turned away until it was accomplished so that we can rest assured that the times when we've turned away, that we can always turn back and that we are able to be forgiven and cleansed and helped and even graciously restored as soon as we turn back to the Lord after we've turned away because Jesus never turned away. Another way he, of course, never turned away, which is what verse 6 alludes to, is the incredibly painful and hard suffering. He didn't turn away from that either. Not just not turn away in rebellion, he didn't turn away from the hardship and what it took to remain dedicated and devoted. Verse 6 gives us three different things Jesus suffered. He says again, look at the first person language. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Again, think of all the personal hardships Jesus willingly endured as the almighty God of creation, living as a man among us. The mockery, the mistreatment, and again, notice the first person indicating the willingness. Jesus says, I gave myself. You see that there in verse 6? I gave myself, he says, to these things. Not, I, I was subjected to such things. He said, I consciously walked into that. I knew from all of eternity that was going to be a part of the process, but I determined to walk straight through that pain, that dishonor, that disgrace, that suffering. He says, I gave my back to those who struck me. Now, that's describing the process of scourging. Matthew 27 says that first they scourged Jesus before they crucified Jesus. And let me just say, crucifixion as a form of capital punishment to put someone to death is probably one of the most brutal practices of torture and capital punishment that was ever carried out in human history. That's where we get our term, you do realize, excruciating. We talk about excruciating pain, comes from crucifixion, excruciating. Because it was one of the worst forms of being put to death. But to further torture victims before they would be crucified, sometimes to expedite the death process, they would often weaken them through severe blood loss through the scourging process. And this is what Jesus is describing here. I gave my back to those who struck me. Again, the scourging process was when they would stretch out the victim and they would whip the victim with a whip that had many different tails to it. It usually were lead straps, but embedded in the lead straps were typically lead or bone or glass. And it wasn't the coming down of the scourging. It was when they would yank back the whip because it literally the bone or the lead or the glass would grab the flesh and it would literally rip it off the back of the victim. Typically, up to 39 times they would scourge someone in this way, the Roman soldiers, leaving their back like a bloody mess. Sometimes they say historically even you know, under layers of, of flesh, even potentially organs exposed when the harsh scourging process would happen. So this would tremendously bloody and weaken the victim. And Jesus said, I gave myself to that torture. I gave myself to it. Again, he was God. He could have stopped it at any moment. But he said, I gave myself to it. He says as well here, secondarily in verse 6, I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. The idea is brutally ripping out chunks of hair from his face. Extremely painful. 
Not to mention the Bible describes as well how Jesus numerous times was slapped and punched in the face repeatedly. Isaiah 52 says that the image of Jesus, his facial image, was so marred and such a bloody, bruised, swollen mess that literally it was hard to recognize his identity as a result of how badly he was abused. Thirdly, he says here, and I did not also hide my face from shame and from spitting. Again, being spit upon is probably one of the grossest forms of utter degradation that can be done to a human being. I mean, not only gross, but if you want to talk about trying to just completely disgrace a person, Mark 14 says that Jesus was spit on multiple times. And again, can I remind you who this is? This is the Son of God. This is the one who's done nothing wrong, everything innocent, and who came to do nothing but to seek and save and help humanity. And these sinful, guilty human beings are spitting on God's Son. They're spitting on Jesus in complete disgrace. And again, this is Almighty God letting humanity pummel him, abuse him, beat him, even disgracefully spit on him, and it says he was not turning away. He was absorbing it completely. Now, let me just say, why would God allow himself in the person of Jesus? Why would God allow his son, his own dear precious son, to be subjected to such pain physically, mentally, emotionally, I mean, the, the torment that he was put through in his humanity and not turn away but with determination endure that, I can tell you one reason why for sure was to ensure you and I of his tremendous love for us. To ensure us, look, what does it take for me to assure you I love you tremendously? Listen, the Bible, every time it points in the New Testament to the love of Jesus, to the love of God, it always speaks of Jesus' sufferings. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because Jesus laid down his life for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was manifested and revealed towards us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins. You notice every time God wants to convince us of the depths of his love for us, he doesn't point to circumstances, he doesn't point to how our life seems to be going situationally, how we're thinking, how we feel, what we understand and don't have questions answered. He always just points to one thing, what his son was subjected to, which we're reading about here, Isaiah 53 expands upon it even more, and he says, that's my assurance that I love you. Please believe that, God's saying. Accept it. Accept the reality of my love and don't let anything else confuse you about it. You're forgiven and you're greatly loved. What a wonderful reality to have an assurance of. 